We get the privilege of looking at God's Word together again. I hope you love it. hope you've been looking forward to it. We get to look at Philippians 1 today once again. So have your Bible open there if you would. We'll get to look at Philippians 1 verses 27 to 30. And up until this point, Paul has just been informing us and them, kind of bringing them up to speed about what was going on with him. He had been letting them know that God had used his imprisonment and turned it for his glory, praise God. And in that moment, we saw last week that his mind kind of went to things related to life and death. And he gives us that deeply empowering truth for Christians, that if we live, it's for Christ. And if we die, it's just gain. Praise God for that. Christ alone be our treasure. Christ alone our reward, says the song that we sing. All these truths that he's given us are made possible only because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. We praise him today. Now in verse 27 that we're going to look at today, Paul gives us the, the first imperative of this letter. An imperative is a command. You know, do this, don't do this. Let your so-and-so be so-and-so. It's, he's telling us something to do. He hasn't really told us anything to do up until this point, but here he does. He gives us a command, and then he kind of expounds upon it. So let's read it together. Philippians 1, 27 to 30. <clears throat> the Bible says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Amen. That's the word of the living God. Let me just say something right here at the very top of the sermon that is massively important for us to remember. God doesn't just pardon us by his grace. He empowers us to obey him by his grace. Let me say that again. God doesn't just pardon us by his grace. He empowers us to obey him by his grace. Now remember that because it will be relevant to this passage. The way that the grace of God shows itself in our lives is that our lives actually change. We're made new, right? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Another way of saying it might be, the grace of God leaves a mark wherever it touches. It leaves an indelible mark. You can state it negatively too. Where there's no change, there's no grace. We see that all over Scripture, like in James, when James says, faith without works is dead. In other words, if someone claims to have faith in Jesus but doesn't do the works of Jesus, in other words, obey his commands, whatever they have, it's not faith. It's dead. It's deadness. John says the same thing in 1 John 2. He says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's 1 John 2, 3, and 4. I love talking about and thinking about the grace of God in Christ. Do you? It's marvelous, stunning, gorgeous, magnificent. I don't have the words to do it justice. But in all of our talk about the grace of God, we have to remember that the grace of God is not something that we can take advantage of and remain unchanged. In fact, you can't even pretend to do that. It's impossible to have grace, true grace from God, and remain unchanged. Because God's grace and salvation always results in obedience to Christ. It won't be perfect obedience, will it? It won't be perfect obedience in this life, but the trajectory of our life and the deep desire of our heart will be to know what God says and to obey Him and please Him in that way. Now, what kind of change takes place as a result of the grace of God? What does that change look like? It's reflected right here in our passage. Paul gives us this sweeping statement of verse 27. So maybe the Philippians were thinking, Paul, you're going through what now? What, what can we do? How can we help? Surely there's something we can do to help you while you're in prison. And Paul says this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's a certain way that Christians are to live. And it's not just different, right? It's a specific kind of different. We are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's very interesting when you start digging into some of the words that Paul chose to use here that the Holy Spirit guided him to use. It's very interesting because... You know, Paul wrote this letter in the Greek language. When we have an English Bible in front of us, it's translating the Greek to English. And the word that he uses here in this phrase has to do with citizenship. 
So the English phrase in your Bible, in, in the ESV Bible that I read, the phrase, let your manner of life be, all of that is a translation of one Greek word that carries the idea of living as a citizen of a certain country. So the idea is let your living be in accordance with your citizenship. Question, if you're a Christian today, where is your citizenship? In heaven, right? Our main citizenship is not that we're citizens of the United States of America. That citizenship is secondary to our primary citizenship, which is in heaven. Now, how do you live as a citizen of heaven? Paul says, behave as a citizen who's worthy of the gospel of Christ, essentially. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, that means a lot of things, I think. We saw some of them in our gospel culture series not too long back, but To live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ means much more than we were able to cover back then. This command, as I called it a while ago, sweeping, because it is, it essentially means that we are to live in obedience to every command in God's word that is relevant to a New Testament believer. Every command. What did Jesus say when he commissioned the disciples? We call it the Great Commission. He said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. So becoming a disciple of Jesus involves submitting yourself to God's word and observing or obeying all that God has told us to do. So verse 27 is a big command. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now having said that it involves all of the commands of God, Paul does, gives us, Paul does give us some specifics that he's thinking about. So I'd like to go through these four verses with you today, draw out some precepts of what God is saying here about Christian living. These are like some of the components of Christian living. These are some aspects of the Christian calling. Okay? So... Assess yourself as we go through these. Are these things true of you? Okay? Here we go. Living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ means being, number one, consistent. Consistent. Read with me again, beginning in verse 27. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that... Whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear that you are doing these various things that we'll get to in just a minute. The point for now is that Paul says that they and we 
are to be living consistently, whether he was going to be released from prison and come and see them or whether he was not and, and he was going to be away from them, they ought to conduct themselves in the same manner, right? Consistently worthy of the gospel of Christ. Another way of saying it is they were not to do these things for Paul, the man. Paul might be there or he might not be there, he said. Do it for God's glory. He sees. When no one else sees, God sees. Remember what Colossians 3.23 says? It says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So, Christian, brother, sister, you are living for the glory of Christ, not for the praise of man, not even for the notice of man. So, Paul reminds them here, I might see you doing this, I might not, doesn't matter. Be consistent. Whether I come or not, live for Christ. There is a, uh, a good phrase in Latin that theologians have used down through the years. I'll teach you some Latin here, okay? I don't know very much Latin. But I could teach you this one, okay? The phrase is quorum deo, C-O-R-A-M space D-E-O, quorum deo. It means in the presence of God or before the face of God. And one of my theological heroes, R.C. Sproul, he tells this in one of the articles that he wrote. He, he said a friend came to him and asked him a very earnest question. He said, R.C., what is the big idea of the Christian life? What is the big overarching idea of the Christian life? And here's how R.C. Sproul answered that. He said, Coram Deo captures the essence of the Christian life. To live Coram Deo, he said, is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God, end quote. When we live Coram Deo, we live for the audience of one. God, right? That means we don't separate our lives into religious and non-religious parts, right? Our living doesn't change depending on who we're around because we realize we're living quorum Deo. Everything we do is before God. He sees, he hears. So consistency is a huge part of living in a manner worthy of the gospel. So let's assess ourselves. Are we consistent? Or do we kind of cave to our surroundings? Do we change our behavior? Do we change the way we talk? Do we change the way we think, depending on who we're around, or where we're at, or what we're doing? And what's our motives? Are we trying to impress people? Or are we doing what 1 Corinthians 10.31 says? It says, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
not of men, not for the praise of man, to the glory of God. Christianity is not something that we flip a switch to turn on and off when we walk out of our house. We better flip the Christian switch on, right? No, it's not an acting job. It's an entire way of life before God, under God's authority, for God's glory. And it ought, ought always to be consistent with the gospel. We talked about so many ways in that gospel culture series, but as you read the scriptures, you'll see them. Pay attention to them. Consistency. Next, the, the living the Christian life also means being, number two, cooperative. In other words, there is a group dynamic to the Christian life. There is a communal reality. Look again at verse 27. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Do you see the cooperation in there? We are to be linked up with other believers. We are to be standing firm together in one spirit, in one mind. We're to be striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And implicit in here is that we can't do that by ourselves. It's a together thing, isn't it? You and I need Christian community. We need the local church. In other words, we can't do what God tells us to do without the local church. It's the way God designed it. We are to be functioning as a unit, right? There's to be a unity among God's people. I'm so glad that we have what I perceive in my limited vision. I can't see hearts. But in my limited vision, I think we have a gospel unity in this church, and I'm thankful for that. Unity among God's people is very important to God. It's a constant theme in Scripture. Listen to what Paul told the Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. He said, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Does that sound familiar? We just, it's very similar to verse 27 of Philippians. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager. Christian unity is very important to God. We are to be zealous over the unity of the church. We can read in the book of Proverbs in the sixth chapter about some things that God says he hates, he detests, he abhors. Pick your term. This is one of them. One who sows discord among brothers. Proverbs 6.19 says God hates that. 
one who sows discord among brothers. If God hates that, how careful should we be then to maintain unity in the body of Christ? Search your own heart. How important is the church's unity to you? You know, that's where unity or disunity begins in your heart. How you look at someone. How you think about someone. You think a certain way about someone before you act on it. And before you know it, discord has already started. Look at your own heart. Unity is so important to God. Now, what type of cooperation does Paul have in mind here in this passage? Well, he says, we're to stand firm together in one spirit. That's a military term that he uses there. It means we are to be anchored in a fixed position. So like, Picture a soldier on the front lines of battle with his feet dug in, perhaps shield like this, perhaps lined up with others side by side. Standing firm. That's how we're to be standing against our common enemy, Satan. You know, that's how he'll try to discredit the gospel is he'll find someone that's not standing firm He'll get behind enemy lines and he'll cause discord and he will try to discredit the entire gospel that way and try to discredit the goodness of God. So stand firm in one spirit, Paul says. And it says strive together as well. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, verse 27. Striving, I found out, is an athletic term. We've got... An athletic term, a military term, a civil term in here. This is very interesting terminology that Paul's using. So this striving is an athletic term. It's the idea of putting forth maximum effort in an athletic event. So Paul says, just like an athlete does, strain with everything in you side by side with your brothers and sisters in Christ for the sake of the gospel. Expending your energy for the sake of the gospel. And all of this kind of reinforces this idea that we're not in peacetime here. We're in a battle. We're in a war. And our fight is not against people. We fight against ideas and ungodly ways of thinking, and godless worldviews, and so forth. That's what Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 10. It says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So we're striving together against a, what, like a world system which is dishonoring and blaspheming God at just about every turn, isn't it? So what do we do? We stand firm. 
We strive side by side with one another so that the gospel goes forth. We pool our resources. We pool our efforts together. We do everything in our power to help people to realize God is real. He made us. We're accountable to him. He's holy. We sinned against him. He's going to punish all sin. But he's also gracious and merciful to forgive those who turn from their sin and come to him in faith. We plead with people. Be reconciled to God. It's a church effort. All the members of the church, ambassadors for Christ, each in their own spheres of influence. We're all doing it together. So the Christian life is not this very individualized, uh, private thing that we just all sort of have to figure out on our own. We're all out there, all by ourselves. No. The Lord made us for community. That's why he tells us in Hebrews, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Be constantly meeting together and stirring each other up to love and to good works. It's for, it's for our own good. He's not giving us some command arbitrarily to give us busy things to do, right? He's, he's telling us, this is what you need. Meet together. Stir one another up to love, to good works. That's Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. So I need you. You need me. You need each other. We all need each other to grow and to fight and to resist in all the things that Christians are called to do. The way we will grow Christ-like is by doing it in a community together. So part of the Christian calling is to live with this cooperative mindset, linking arms together around the truth of the gospel and the word of God. And the local church is just massively important in that. It's how God is carrying out his most important work, getting the gospel out through the local church. A third thing that's mentioned here in our passage about Christian living is being courageous. See that in verse 28. Look at that. Verse 28. And not frightened by anything by, or excuse me, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that from God. We're called to be courageous. You say, how in the world... Do we get there? I'm not very brave. I'm not courageous. Here's how we get there. We meditate on things like this. Christ has turned all of my fears into triumphs. Hasn't he? We used to fear death. Now what is it? It's gain. What can man do to me? Kill me? 
then I'll just go be with Christ. What else can man do to me? Hurt me? Maybe. But even though he torture me, I can remember the words of Scripture. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. There's glory coming after the pain. So take courage. These are the things that we can think about from Scripture. Here's another thing. Courage inspires courage. I'm inspired when I read about the long history of saints who have been tortured, killed, tremendous suffering for Christ from the apostles all the way up until the modern time. Christian courage. Christians have been stoned to death, fed to wild animals for entertainment, burned alive, crushed to death by weights, stretched to death having their limbs pulled off, beaten to death with clubs and whips, thrown off of buildings and off of cliffs, flayed alive with knives, and many other gruesome things that just defy description. Do yourself a favor and get a copy of John Fox's Book of Martyrs and read it. See what it might do to you. See if it will inspire courage in you. There have been many brothers and sisters in Christ who looked torture and death right in the face and would not recant their belief in Christ. They would not turn away from him even though they knew what was coming next was going to be extreme agony and pain. Christ was worth more to them than their body. Polycarp was a man that lived in the second century. We know the apostle John from scripture. Wrote the book of John and Revelation. Some other epistles. Polycarp was a student of John. And Polycarp was arrested and sentenced to be burned in the marketplace just for being a Christian at the time of the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius. And when the governor stood before him to sentence him, he told Polycarp, Reproach Christ! And I will release you. That's all he had to do. And Polycarp said this back to him. Eighty-six years I have served him, and he never once wronged me. How then, can, how then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And then they burned him alive. And there's story after story of things like this happening all throughout church history. Right up to this very day, Christians being persecuted all over the world. And we're told here by God, don't be frightened by your opponents. Be courageous. Remember what Paul said elsewhere? If God is for us, who could be against us? Romans 8.31 And He says something else here. 
Just our courage is a witness to those oppressors. When we have courage in the face of persecution, or even in milder forms of opposition like we have here, like us wimps have here, like ridicule, yeah, we're wimps. Milder forms, ridicule, laughter, somebody not thinking we're cool. When we have courage in the face of that, all the way up until as serious as someone going to chop our head off. When we fearlessly and courageously stand firm, it is a clear sign to the opposition of their coming destruction, is what this verse says. We're speaking, in other words, loud and clear by our courage. We really believe this. The gospel is true, in other words. And if you reject the only way of salvation, you just you do so at your own peril. There is a real place called hell. It's where people go who reject God's Son. It's very clear from the Bible. Matter of fact, Jesus talked more about hell than anybody, and he used some of the most horrific terminology to describe it than anyone. It's a reality, in other words. Horrible place. And when we courageously stand firm for the gospel without intimidation, with courage, believing in our deepest heart that we're standing for the truth, we're bearing witness to the fact that the gospel is true just just by that. We're bearing witness to the fact that eternal punishment is true. And that's worse than what you're going to do to me, Mr. Swordsman, Mr. Torturer. And it also bears witness that eternal life is real. And if we just wimp out when it gets tough, I mean, what does that say to the opposition? It says the gospel isn't really worth it. We don't really believe it. If something's really worth believing, it's worth dying for. It's true whether you kill me or not. I'm not going to tell you it's not true and then you keep me alive. It's, it's not what I believe. So this courage that we're to have in face of opposition, it comes from this robust belief in the gospel of Christ that says, here's what we are, you and I, Here's what Christ has done in his mercy. He's king, not me, not you. He deserves all of your praises and all of my praises. Here I stand. I can do no other. This is the truth. Believe on Christ. Let the chips fall, right? Christian courage. Lord, help us be courageous for the gospel. I draw so much courage from those overseas who are taking so much more heat than we are. 
I'm ashamed of myself. We're afraid of funny looks. How shameful is this? Lord, help us. Christian courage is what we need. So we've seen so far from this passage that the Christian calling, the Christian life, is one of consistency, cooperation. They all start with C to help you remember them. Consistency, cooperation, courage, and finally, our passage says that we are called to suffer. Look at verse 29 and 30. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is probably something that the average Christian today just, we don't think about it very often. And we need to be reminded of this. We have been gifted the privilege to suffer for the sake of Christ. Gifted, I chose the words very carefully, gifted the privilege to suffer for the sake of Christ. Do you see that in the Scripture? It doesn't say, hey, here's one negative aspect. I know most of it's good, but here's one negative aspect of the Christian life that you're just going to have to get through it. Suffering for Christ. It's not how it says it, is it? It's not how it's portrayed. It is portrayed as a privilege, a gift. It has been granted to us. That means graciously given by God to suffer for Jesus' sake. You say, that sounds crazy. You sure that's what the Bible means? The apostles knew that's what it means. What did they do when they suffered? They knew that it was a privilege. Listen to this from Acts 5. 40 and 41 says, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Wow. Is this kind of thing even on my and your mental radar? That to suffer for the sake of Christ is actually a privilege and not a tragedy. Listen to what our Lord said. Jesus said this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Those who suffer for Christ should rejoice. Their reward will be great in heaven. Man. Here's a passage that puts 
the last two points kind of together. Courage with suffering. This is what Peter said in 1 Peter 3, 14 and 15. He says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. What a beautiful, humbling picture of Christian suffering. A Christian who is suffering for righteousness sake but has no fear of the ones doing the persecuting. And it's not a brazen you know, in-your-face kind of fearlessness. It's very different. They're not hostile back to the ones doing the persecuting. They just love and honor Christ so deeply in their hearts that they gently, it says, and respectfully give the reasons for the hope that's in them. It's amazing. God help us to be that kind of people, huh? People who are not looking for a fight, but who are resolved to be courageous in the face of suffering, knowing that we've been given the privilege to suffer for Christ, and our methods are gentleness and respect through the whole thing. That's the Christian way. And I can't help but mention something else that's found in verses 29 and 30. The way that Paul introduces the fact that it's been graciously granted to us to suffer for Christ is that he pairs that up with the fact that belief in Christ has been gifted to us. They're both gifts from God. The belief and the suffering. Read it again. Philippians 1.29 for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So why are you saved this morning if you are? I can tell you why. Because God granted you belief in Jesus. That's what the Bible says. Do you think of your salvation that way? That it was granted to you? Yes, you believed. But who granted you the belief? Yes, you made a choice. But who gave you the want to, to make the choice? God did. From, from our perspective, it seems like we're coming to Christ. It seems like we found God. But in reality, God is the one who found us. We're, our condition was just, we're dead in trespasses and sins. He made us alive. So he was the one doing things while we're dead on the floor, spiritually speaking. He's the one causing things to happen. This is the sovereignty of God in salvation. And it is a stream that runs from cover to cover throughout the Bible. And a thing to be rejoiced in 
not debated and heated arguing over. A thing to rejoice in. I just mentioned it today because it's found right there so clearly in verse 29. The same grace of God that gives us our belief, who saves us, also gives us the gift of suffering for Jesus' sake. Suffering is not a punishment from God. It's not something that we suffer through, no pun intended, right? Suffering for Christ is a privilege and a gift. Steve Lawson, he says, These two gifts, salvation and suffering, are inseparably bound together. May God help us to see salvation as well as suffering like that as a gift. Even when we're in the flames of it, when it's hard to remember that, it is a gift to suffer for Christ. This is the Christian calling. This is what you and I are called to do as Christians. Do, to be consistently living in a way that commends the gospel of Christ. To live cooperatively with one another as a team, as a family. Striving together for the sake of the gospel. We are to live courageously, number three, in the face of opposition. And we are called to suffer for the sake of Christ. And we count it a privilege to do so. When we do that, we are living as citizens of heaven. We're living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now here's a closing question. How in the world are you and I going to do it? Think about it. How in the world are we going to live up to this? How are you and I going to live consistently for Christ we're wishy-washy people, aren't we? We are. How are you and I who are selfish and always looking out for me, myself, and I? How are we going to live in unity with other believers? How are we going to have a cooperative mindset and admit that we actually need one another? How are you and I who are many times just wimps and cowards how are we going to stand firm and be courageous in the face of persecution or opposition? And how are you and I, when we're so self-preserving, who love our ease and our convenience and our relaxation, how are we going to suffer for Christ and consider it to be a privilege? How is any of that going to happen? Here is the only way that it will happen. By the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. That's it. You can't muster up what these verses are telling us to do within yourself. Of your own power. Think back to the statement that I made at the beginning of the sermon. Because it will encourage you now as we think about how we're going to pull any of this off. I said, one thing I said was, grace leaves a mark wherever it touches. If you've received the grace of God, if God has truly saved you, he's left his mark, so to speak. You now have the Holy Spirit living inside you. 
He's made you a new creation. He's graced you with abilities that you did not have before. You couldn't obey him before. Now you can. So if you're saying today, ooh, I can't do some of these things. I mean, I, I don't have a courageous personality. It's not a personality trait that God is calling us to develop. It is a supernatural work of God that he gives you. And you say, Pastor, I don't think I can bring myself to suffer for Christ and call it a privilege. I mean, I don't have that in me. I know you don't have it in you. I don't have it in me either. God is calling us to do things that we can't naturally do. We only do it by the power of the Spirit. Here's the beauty of it. As God gives the command, He also gives the grace to do it by the power of the Spirit. Like when Jesus, you remember when He called to Lazarus in the tomb? He said, Lazarus, come forth. He's talking to a dead man. He can't even hear. The dead man can't hear. can't feel. He can't sense anything. How's he going to come out if he can't even hear Jesus' command? But as the command went forth from Jesus' mouth, so did the power of the Spirit cause that man to get up. So don't forget that the Spirit does these things in our life. Walk in the Spirit. It's not your or mine individual abilities or talents or something that helps us do this. It's Christ. Living in us. We have these new affections, don't we? New desires, new wills. We can now do things that we couldn't do before. We can even do supernatural things. Like love your neighbor. And patiently endure suffering. And count it a joy to do so. That's supernatural. We can't do that by ourselves. So, this passage... I'm saying all this to say this passage is not so much a pep talk. Like, get yourself together and do this. As much as it is saying, since Christ lives in you, do these things by His power. Rely on Him. Now, maybe as we close here, maybe you've been listening to all this talk. Thinking, what are you talking about? This makes no sense to me. This is all foreign to me. And maybe that is because you don't have Jesus in your life yet. And I want to tell you this morning, don't leave here without him. Don't leave without him. Don't leave this place unsure, unsettled about your eternal state. Come to Christ and have all your sins forgiven. And you can begin your Christian journey right now. What a joy that would be for you and us and heaven itself. So...
Church, may Jesus be so big to us and so gracious and glorious to us that all the things in this passage will just flow out of our lives in the power of his spirit for his glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word this morning. You have given us commands, Lord, here that we are not able to obey in our own power. Only can we obey them through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. What you did on the cross, Lord Jesus, was nothing short of a world-changing work. You started your new creation that day. You started making all things new that day. And through Christ, Lord, you've made us into new creatures. Help us to be consistent Christians. Keep us from hypocrisy. And Lord, help us to have a cooperative mindset where we value the community of God that you've given us, where we stand firm together and we strive together for the sake of the gospel of Christ. And help us to be courageous in the face of opposition. You said you'd never leave us or forsake us, and that infuses us with power even right now as I say it. And help us, Lord, to count it a privilege that we can suffer for your sake. May we not deny you if intense persecution come upon us. May we stand firm and be courageous. May we not be cowards. Lord, help us in all these ways to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. All for his glory. In his name we pray.